Hello, everyone. Welcome to an episode of The Zach Hiley Show. Today, I have the honor of being with Alubenga Okusanya, who's MD, F-A-C-S. He's currently an assistant professor of surgery in the Department of Surgery at Thomas Jefferson University in Philadelphia. He obtained his Bachelor of Arts in Biology with an honor in Neurobiology from Harvard College in 2005. He subsequently attended and graduated from the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine, where he decided on a career in academic surgery. He completed his general surgery training at the Hospital of the University of Pennsylvania, which included a two-year research fellowship in the Harrison Division of Research, where he studied the intraoperative use of fluorescent probes for the detection of lung cancer. He was a highly decorated general surgery resident, winning multiple teaching and leadership awards. He then completed his cardiothoracic fellowship at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, where he was recruited to stay on as a faculty member in 2018. He was then recruited to Thomas Jefferson University in 2020. Dr. Okasanya has been recognized as a leader in thoracic surgery, having been selected to participate in the Society of Thoracic Surgery and the American Association of Thoracic Society Leadership Academies. He was recommended as the Reviewer of the Year of the Annals of Thoracic Surgery in 2021 and has published more than 50 peer-reviewed papers. He is also a nationally recognized expert on robotic thoracic surgery and the racial disparities in the utilization of surgery of thoracic malignancies. He was also selected as an inaugural participant of the Bristol-Myers Squibb Foundation Diversity and Clinical Trials Career Development Program. So the way I like to start out these podcasts is I like to read a couple of statistics around surgery and specifically cardiothoracic surgery, and then I'll get your input on that. So we start with burnout, right? The most most interesting one. So in surgery... 35% of physicians report being burnt out compared to a 47% average. At the top of the list, emergency medicine is 60% burnout reports, and public health is at the bottom at 26%. So I'll go through the rest of them, and then any things that pop up, let me know. Sure. So when asked, would you stay in your specialty if you could choose again? At the top, we have derm and ortho. Derm at 99%, ortho at 97%. Surgery was in the middle at 83%, and internal medicine was at the bottom at 63%, which is the specialty I'm interested in, by the way. Salary. Average salary of a physician is 339000 Average general surgery salary is 445000 and average CT surgery salary is $712,000. This is median income, not average, sorry. Average hours, so average physician is 51 hours a week. General surgery is 60 hours a week. CT surgery is 62 hours a week, so you win that one. There you go. (laughs) In regards to training, the step one score is 236 in regards to surgery average of accepted two surgery programs compared to an average of 232. The step two score was 248 compared to the average of 245. The training usually includes five years plus usually a year of research, and then for CT surgery, two years of fellowship. That's the end of my statistics. Anything anything stand out to you there? You know, I think it's interesting, the burnout data. I am simultaneously surprised and not surprised, yeah. actually, that surgeons are a little bit lower on the burnout scales. I think, you know, a third of us being burnt out is obviously not ideal. Yeah. But I think the fact that we are less burned out than the average makes sense because I think if you're in it, quote unquote, for, in it for the right reasons, yeah. there is a lot of pleasure. There's a lot yeah. of like gratification, a lot of it instant, you know, which works with human brains to get that instant feedback that feels so good. So I can see why there's going to be a little bit more joy on a day-to-day mm-hmm. basis that may help you sort of protect against some of the burnouts. 
it, it's interesting to me because I, you know, when you're in medical school, you hear surgery is the hardest thing. Surgery is the most tough. Most people in surgery are burnt out. And then I look at this and it says, you know, emergency medicine wins yeah. at 60%. This is from 2021. This result, this this uh, paper. So I'm also wondering if COVID had to had to come into play here, right? I'm yeah. wondering if those numbers went up. I'm sure they went up. Absolutely. But I'm wondering if EM went up more than surgery. I bet it did. You know, I being in the did. ER during that time must have been grueling. Awesome. Same thing with uh, critical care medicine and poem must have been absolutely grueling. Near the top. Yeah. Near the top. Um, and then also the other thing that's interesting to me is the research year. Does everyone yeah. take a research year that does surgery? Yeah. So. I would say on average around the country, probably not, right? Okay. If you look at the amalgamation of all the programs. Okay. Generally, as you look towards the more quote unquote rigorous or academic mm-hmm. programs, then you know, we we really have transitioned that year from like research year to academic enrichment time. Got it. And okay. more programs are moving towards that time being something that people really want to do. Got it. You know, even that being said, like even at Penn, which is a very, very rigorous academic program, there were several residents that did no time and went straight through. But I think as we are heading to a world where the majority of people are going into some sort of fellowship in order to sort of become more competitive for those fellowships and to sort of plan out your future careers, especially if you're going to be in academics. Mm -hmm. I think more people are leaning towards that time. Like one year, certainly two years is really like that sweet spot for most projects, especially if you're going to get another degree. So two years is really a nice window. Some people, you know, I have a good friend who did a PhD. He spent four years. So it's really uh, a very... Uh, heterogeneous time mm. and population and people do all sorts of stuff either bench research translational research you know some people work on get an MBA they do all sorts of things so that time is really more all-encompassing as to academic enrichment time and you think the main reason people do it is competitiveness for fellowship yeah I, okay. if I had to be totally frank yeah, I think no. <laughs> that is the main reason that most people do it yes. I think that time though that's the that's the, the impetus that's what makes you do it mm-hmm. you know in retrospect that was like a wonderful time in my life Right. I had two years off. You know, I had control of my life again. I had mm-hmm. control of my schedule again. We got a dog. We got Amazing. married. Congratulations. You know, we 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 you know, we got we got pregnant with my son. We did a lot of stuff in that time that was so good for my well being yes. that it allowed me to come back for like what is a relatively long stretch, because you come back for your two chief years, which are by far the most sort of mentally challenging. Mm-hmm. Then you go into fellowship, which is another two to three years. So you're talking about a four to five year stretch of real intensity. So I think taking that break was incredibly valuable. And as a matter of fact, I would recommend it, if nothing else, for that. For the break. For the break, right? You can think about it in terms of like, okay, I'm going to publish these papers. I'm going to be working really hard, which you will. You might actually work harder in a lot of ways, but you have control. And that control or the ability to moonlight and make a little bit more money, Mm -hmm. that ability to sleep in and see your kids or see your family, go on a really nice vacation, I can't. I can't overstate how valuable that is because surgery is such a grind. The training is such a grind. Why are the chief years the most intensive years, you said? Yeah. So I think you, as a chief, you know, you are at a nexus of knowledge and skills and development that is like hard to replicate at any other time in your training. Um, when you're an intern, your your job is really to like execute the plans, right? If you are focused and diligent, and you work well with people, and you understand how to get how to be really goal oriented, you can really manage those times well. I think when you become a chief, 
you have a lot more complicated things going on. You're managing a team. You're dealing with personalities. You're managing the attendings. Like, yes, attendings also need to be managed. We need to have our hand held at certain points. And also, you are sort of in finishing school for your technical skills, right? You should be able to do certain things by yourself proficiently. You should be able to manage patients proficiently, especially by the end. So I think you're the, the stakes of the game you're playing in those four and five years is much higher than it was in the previous year. Because you're managing your patients, you're managing your under years, right? You're managing your attending, and then you're also managing where you want to go next. That's right. You're competitive. If that's, yeah. If that sounds and good. also, your life is generally more complicated yeah. by that. Like, you know, but in surgery, by the time you're in your chief years, you're probably in your early 30s, which means you might be married, you might have children. You might get a dog. You might get a dog. <laughs> you know, you're going to have a lot of stuff going on, and that all needs to be managed. You know, you're, you're going to be one of the primary instructors for medical students. Right, they are like your. You really are the person that they're going to learn the most from. As 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 much face time as they get with the attendings, the residents are really, the, especially the senior residents, are really the ones that do the majority of the hands-on teaching with the medical students. So there's just a lot going on that needs to be handled. And again, like we don't talk about this much with medical students, the skill sets for success in residency basically change every single year. Okay. What you need to be a good intern, like the natural set of characteristics or the characteristics that you sort of develop in yourself between being an intern or being a middle-level resident or being a chief are completely different. I was an okay intern. Okay. I'm a big-picture person. Yeah. I'm a big-picture person. I'm a people person. Yeah. So I was an okay intern, and I, like, really forced myself to, like, get through that time. It's hard for me to check boxes all the time. I was a pretty good two or three because I was, like, comfortable moving out of different spaces, mm -hmm. and I was a really good chief because I really en enjoyed that process of being with the juniors and the medical students and the attendings and, like— feeling more confident about my abilities, like that really helped me flourish. Mm -hmm. So, you know, even if things aren't necessarily going great at the beginning, I would advise people that like, you know, it changes. That's yeah. the beauty of the job is that, you know, rotation to rotation, year to year, the skill sets are different, the strengths and weaknesses are different, and you have to adapt to that. Sometimes it'll play to you and sometimes it'll play against you. So it seems like you have a passion for teaching. I do. Did that come from anywhere in particular as experience or a medical student yeah. or a resident yeah. or a personal situation? Yeah. Or? I think it's multifaceted. So, okay. like, you know, my parents are both, like, de facto teachers. Yeah. But, you know, my dad is a PhD botanist. Wow. So he's been a teacher his whole life. Mm -hmm. My mom is a physical therapist who mm -hmm. did a lot of teaching. She actually sort of, um, she created, like, an after-school lesson uh, for my brothers. I have three older brothers that was, like, when they were, like, 7, 8, 9, 10, where she, like, taught them all the stuff about standardized testing and, like, other kids in the neighborhood would come to our house to learn. So, like, there's always been a, a huge value in my family on education. So, for me, that's something that was instilled in me. And then also, I just had so many really wonderful experiences with excellent chief residents and attendings in medical school that I feel like really, frankly, indebted to. Mm -hmm. And that felt like, you know, something that was really worth paying forward. And this is an experience I want to touch on too, because when you go to medical school, they'd say, you know, attendings are going to yell at you. Everyone's going to yell at you. People are, might even throw a scalpel at you in the <laughs> OR or something like that. Yeah. But when I was actually there, my experience was completely different. Yeah. I don't know if it's just Thomas Jefferson or the people around here. Everyone's very nice. Mm -hmm. They're very helpful. They care about me. I think I was yelled at once because my hand got stuck in the robot and something was moving down and they, she's like, get your hand out of there. Yeah, exactly, like, before ah! you lose a digit. And But other than that, everyone's been extremely, extremely nice to me. And that's, I think, a, a misconception people who aren't in the clinical world, especially when you're pre-med and applying, you're expecting scalpels to be thrown that's at you right. and people to be yelled at and you just take it, right? Yeah. You're the strong medical student right. or the strong 
strong intern or the strong resident. But it's not like that in my experience at all. Yeah. Is do you think that's changed? Because you're a fairly newer attending, right? Yeah. Do you think it's it's moved in that direction, or kind of the perception has changed? Um, I think for you know it's multifactorial. Yeah. I certainly think there has been a, a pretty seismic shift in surgical culture. Got it. So when I was a medical student, this was back, what, in 2006, 2007? I would say there was still a fair amount of routine bad behavior. Okay. Right? And, like, you know, I would see things in the OI that I would I would consider now to be, like, unacceptable, mm-hmm. like, cannot do. Yep. You know, should be fired, should have a meeting yes. with someone, like, just can't do it. Yeah. I think that culture has changed, like, not in small part due to the 80-hour work week, the overall culture of medicine, the overall professionalization of medical professionalism. Yes. And also the generation of people that chose surgery, you know, like me, 15, 20 years ago, has now come into a position where, like, they are the primary people responsible for other people. Mm-hmm. So I think that has really, like, been a vibe shift. Yeah. So I think for sure a lot of it is that there has been a change. And then secondly, there is a, there is a significant uh, misconception about surgeons and surgery culture. Right. I think if you look at, you know, the movies that came out in the 80s or 90s, like the surgeons were were demons. Right. They were these like incredible, they were sociopaths. Right. You know, they were self-obsessed. They only cared about the surgery, about their Maserati and how much money they made, which is like not a good enough reason to do surgery. Yeah. Money is a terrible reason to do medicine. You can make a lot more money doing other things. You could be in tech. You could be selling NFTs and you'd make a lot more money than if you ever decided to be a doctor. So I think that misconception and the portrayal in the media in some degree of like what surgeons look like has uh, really colored people's expectations. So between that and the shift, I think we have at least a generation now where I think surgery is, is fundamentally different than it was 20 or 30. Okay, that, that's nice to hear. Yeah. Out of curiosity, yeah. do you have any, you want to give me one of those things in 2006, 2007, 2008 that was unacceptable that someone oh. should have a meeting for or something <laughs> like that? <laughs> yeah, telling you one thing is like the easy part. Um, you know, I, I would say I remember being a medical student yes. and I would uh, be in the OR yeah. and I remember distinctly surgeons throwing sharp instruments. Like, that's a real, that that's a real, a real thing. thing. That's a real thing. That's I've seen it with my, with my, all four of my eyes. You know, I've seen people throw sharp things. I've seen people um, swear or demean a, like a grown person, like a 34, 35 year old who's months away from being attending themselves in a way that I think was almost subhuman, like screaming at them, saying things that I think are, you know, largely inappropriate mm-hmm. for, for this format. And, that was just part of, there was just day-to-day basis. And it would happen day That's after right, day after day. Re- did they nope. throw it like at the No, it was like at the wall. At like the wall. they would throw it like, you know, if you're standing across yeah. from someone, usually you have an assistant and a yeah. back, and someone would throw things in between the two of them at the ground. Like, I didn't want this. And they like chuck it at the ground and like things it's would clatter. probably a dangerous thing Yo, to do, of course, right? Yeah. Of course. Clearly, not, a, not to mention a waste of yeah, resources. Waste of, clearly dangerous, clearly inappropriate. And it was never anything that even made it to any level of scrutiny. Yeah. Right, that was just like, Tuesday. Oh, that's crazy. Yeah. Okay, let's <laughs> let's really get into yeah, it. As yeah, much yeah. as we could go down yeah, these yeah, stories. Yeah. Sure. What is cardiothoracic surgery? Yeah, so cardiothoracic surgery is really an amalgamation of two specific fields that are, frankly, very different. So there's cardiac surgery and there's non-cardiac surgery or aka thoracic surgery. So cardiac surgery is surgery, the mastery of the art of surgery of the heart and the large blood vessels in the chest, right? So heart surgery, aortic surgery, and aortic surgery, which is not only just the aorta, 
you know, ascending aorta, descending aorta, and sometimes the aorta going down into the abdomen. Thoracic surgery is the management of all non-cardiac thoracic surgery. So that would include lung, esophagus, mediastinum, chest wall, foregut. So, and, you know, some things in the neck, some things in the airway, the windpipe. So those are like two very different fields. In America, at least in North America, those things are married under one training banner. So when you train for CT, you get essentially board certified in both, in both cardiac surgery and in thoracic surgery. The difference being that the specialties are completely different in makeup, thought, pay, lifestyle, they're completely different. You know, cardiac surgeons generally are, are very highly compensated because the WRVUs of their cases are very, very high. So when you get, What is WRVU? Oh, this is an excellent thing. <laughs> a, a relative, uh, a work... So yeah, a relative value unit. So, sorry, it. I had to like think of it. No, for it's a okay. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, you know, a relative value unit is essentially something that's set by Medicare that says when you do a procedure or you do a thing, basically any interaction in the healthcare system, it places a value on that and assigns it a number. Those numbers are, they can be multiple kinds of numbers. There's total RVUs, there's WRVUs, and WRVU is a work RVU. It's basically a way of measuring how much work a provider is doing. And they assign values to the kinds of cases. So, for instance, you could do like an inguinal hernia repair may have a value. Uh, an aortic valve replacement has a value. And those values essentially get translated into dollars, into actual healthcare value. So when you look at the way the values are assigned, it intrinsically favors certain special, certain specialties and certain kinds of subspecialties. So that's the reason why proceduralists in general have an advantage because the WRVUs for your actual procedures are generally pretty high. That whole system favors the doing of stuff, not in the counseling of stuff or the writing of notes, which is not necessarily the best way to use value, but that's the way the system is, is made currently. So, so cardiac surgeons have very high value for their procedures. Thus, they make a lot of money. The numbers you gave are probably mixed numbers. Like those are yeah. mixed of private practice and academics. And I'm, you know, your audience may or may not know. In general, academic surgeons or academic physicians make less money than their private practice counterparts. Obviously, you have the umbrella of being an employee, right? So you, someone pays for your malpractice, someone takes care of your office space and your staff. But the the trade off for that is there's a there's essentially a penalty for being an educator. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Yeah, that works out well. So cardiac is kind of its own world. They deal with heart surgery. And they're really, I think, fundamentally something I tell people when they think about surgery is, is your brain reconstructive or deconstructive? Does your brain think about how to put things together or does it think about how to take things apart? My brain thinks about how to take things apart. So that's the reason why I like cancer surgery. I see. Because I see problems and I think about the way to, to remove that problem or shell it out or deconstruct it to remove the problem. If you're a cardiac surgeon, I think you really think about reconstruction, how to get blood flow from one place to another, how to get a valve to properly function, how to replace a blood vessel that isn't doing what it's supposed to be doing. So they're, they're very different in terms of like – brain space and how we approach challenges and problems. The reason why they're married is because, again, in North America, the essentially the governing body looks at it and says, well, these two things occur in the same space, right? And for a long time, thoracic was just basically underneath cardiac. Like, you could be a great heart surgeon who did some coronary bypasses and some valves, and then occasionally you did a lobectomy for lung cancer, or occasionally you did an esophagectomy because it was all in the same space. In the last 30 years or so, thoracic has sort of become professionalized as its own subspecialty to just deal with 
esophagus, lung, mediastinum problems. So that's basically how the the marriage has sort of been maintained. In Europe and in Canada, that is not the way the training paradigm is set up. Got it. Do you have a, because I know you're talking about cancer, do you have a yeah. specific interest within CT surgery that you're focusing on? Yeah. So, you know, I, I consider myself a thoracic oncologist. Yes. So okay. I, I really do the majority of the work for almost, I would say, almost all thoracic surgeons is really lung cancer. Um, that's the that's the bedrock of our work. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, married to that is esophagus cancer. And then there are other questions from there that are like subspecialty, like stems. Like, okay, beyond that, what else would you do? So there's, number one is like robotics. Number two would be benign esophagus. Like, are you interested in things like reflux disease, achalasia, parasophageal hernias? And then probably number three would be lung transplant. So those are the sort of like substems of thoracic that now exists. Much in the same way that cardiac now has like structural heart disease, you know, might you know they have a mechanical support, transplantation, they've all those things over time as you know medical knowledge continues to expand at an unbelievable rate, subspecialists also have like continued to develop over time. Got it. And subspecialty, that's not another fellowship, right? That's just kind of, is when do you become a subspecialist? Yeah, excellent question. So after you do your fellowship, right, yeah. it's interesting, I'm going to introduce a little bit of chaos. Got it, okay. So for, uh, for cardiothoracic, due to the nomenclature, it's actually considered a second residency. Oh. Yeah, so you do a general surgery residency, then you actually do a cardiothoracic residency. Yes, it's a bit of a weird thing in the nomenclature. It's not like some of the other sort of uh, offshoots of general surgery where it's actually, quote unquote, a fellowship. Yeah. You actually do another residency. Then a lot of times nowadays, people are either within that residency, that cardiac or cardiothoracic residency, are choosing to sort of focus on one thing and sort of say, okay, this is what I'm going to do. And now there are a lot of things called super fellowships where mm-hmm. even when you're done with general surgery, cardiothoracic residency, you go and you do a fellowship in one of these particular things that you're interested in, whether it be aorta, whether it be benign esophagus, whether it be lung transplant. So it actually tacks on more time to your training, but you're essentially like a mini attending during that time. You have privileges, you can admit people, you can operate on your own, but you're still in the process of fine-tuning your skill set in this very one specific thing. Wow. So that's a that's a very common trend now in right. CT. So take me through an average day or an average day. Let's say, because uh, this is another thing, right? I always thought in the beginning, people who were surgeons, they're in the OR every single day. Yeah. They just, they wake up, they go into the OR, they leave. They wake up, they go into the OR, <laughs> like they leave. They wake up, they go into the OR, they leave. That's exactly what they do. Yeah. But that's not what they do, right? No. So actually, yeah. let's broaden it a little bit. What, in a month... Yeah. What are the various things you could be doing in the month? And then we'll go into an individual. Excellent. Day. I think, you know, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll narrow it just a little sure, bit. Yes. And I'll look at it by week. Got it. So, for instance, I would say routinely in a week, I would operate three days a week. Got it. So, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, typically, I'm in the OR. Yeah. And those days kind of look like what you imagine. Yes. Right? The OR starts very, very early. The ORs are usually, in most places, are starting between 7 and 7.30. Yeah. But, you know, patients have to be checked in. They have to be pre-opt. All the consents, forms, all our safety checklists, all the stuff for anesthesia has to be done. So usually those patients are there very early. They can get to the hospital at 5 in the morning. And as a surgeon, you usually are going to arrive around 6.15, 6.30 to check your patient in, make sure everything's okay. And then you also have other patients that you've operated on who you got to see. You got to make sure everything's okay. You usually operate as much as you can all day, right? So 7.30, maybe as late as five, six on a routine day, right? Some people get done earlier than that. Some people get done later than that routinely, depending on what you do, 
where you are in your skill set, where you are in your career. And then after that, you go home. So like I would say most of those days, I routinely make it home between five and six. Got it. Right? So I'm home in time to like have dinner with my kids, you know, be part of the nighttime routine. Like I'm a very, very hands-on dad. What time are you waking up these days? Yeah, so I usually wake up like quarter to six, six routinely. That's if I'm not working out. If I yeah. wake up, I usually, if I'm going to work out, I usually wake up at five, go down, hit the Peloton, hit the nice. gym, come upstairs, shower, you know, help my kids get set up for school, uh-huh. pack their lunches and all this other stuff. So that's kind of like what Monday, Wednesday, Friday uh-huh. look like. So those are, those are full days. Like those yeah. are 12 legitimate 12 hour days. Tuesday, Thursdays are usually, you know, some combination of like clinic or administrative days. So routinely that would mean seeing my outpatients. So people come to me who I've operated on, who I'm following for a particular problem or who are new patients who have a new problem that we have to figure out what to do with. And those days are also full, but they're very different. They are completely outpatient, suit and tie, just like I am right now. With Today my, is an outpatient Today is an outpatient, day, right? Day, right? Exactly. And this morning is a um, is like a academic kind of thing. That's exactly. why you can be here, right? That's why okay. I can be here, right? So I have a little bit of wiggle room built into my schedule because I'm doing research. I have a grant. I have some other stuff that I'm doing. So I build a little bit of this time to sort of catch up on all these other plates that I'm spinning at the same time. Thank and you I again do, for appearing on this. Like I, this. I really appreciate it. <laughs> no problem. I do fun <laughs> stuff like this. So, you know, I think those days are much more, believe it or not, cerebral. Okay. Right? I think for thoracic, a lot of the challenges and a lot of the the judgment is in the outpatient world. The mistakes are usually made outpatient. That's how I feel. And I think really? a lot of my, my, my partners and colleagues what are, are What mistakes do you mean in that? Yeah. So, you know, again, we're, we're cancer surgeons, right? Yeah. So you are looking at, did I get the stage right? Did I estimate the risk for this patient appropriately? Is this the right thing to do? Should I think about the alternatives, right? Is there any other testing that I should get? We have a lot of stuff that goes on that you have to really think and suss out. You got to see people. You got to get a measure of them. Like, are they going to tolerate this? It's a lot. And you are teaching, right? You are really actively teaching. And I think that's the other reason why I think teaching is valuable. It's not just for your students, right? If you go into a room with a patient, you may have 20 minutes to basically give them a mini fellowship in lung cancer, esophagus cancer, and make it digestible, right? And say, this is where we are. This is what the sort of dividing rods are. This is the decision tree. This is where my estimation of you, my estimation of your data says we should do this, right? And you have to lead someone through that in a very confident, calm way, but also completely respecting their autonomy to say, I can't exactly know all the things that have value to you, but this is how I would view it. So I think those days are very cerebral, right? And you have to make a lot of plans and you have to avoid, that's that's really the time (laughs) I kind of talk about it as like, I trust Benga from two weeks ago. Got it. Right. That guy was on it, right? That guy had his Thursday. He thought about it. He made this call. I trust that guy. When you're in the OR, you're you're always really the time to execute the plan, right? You try not to make plans on the fly. You're there to execute a predetermined plan in a safe way. And I think that's sort of the difference. You can actually sort of be in the OR and be on autopilot, but you, you can't really do that on your clinic days. You really have to be present and think. And a, a lot of, we hear a lot, you know, I don't have enough time in the clinic and stuff like that. Do you think 20 minutes is enough time or do you think it's too little time? <laughs> it's almost certainly too little time, Got it. right? Like if I, you know, if, if you really think about it, like yeah. I'm, if I say, okay, I'm going to do a complex lung resection on someone, I could quote them a risk of death anywhere between half a percent to 5%. Right. And people are, you know, humans are terrible at estimating risk. Right. No one really understands what that means. And if I'm going to 
essentially assign someone to put their life quite literally in my hands, a 20-minute conversation is almost certainly not appropriate, right? You spend more time than that thinking about getting a latte or buying a shirt or buying a car, right? And that includes the time to write your note as well, the 20 minutes? Yeah, that 20 minutes oftentimes is just to see the patient. Most of the note writing is done at a separate time. If you're lucky, you have a medical scribe or a nurse practitioner or a PA or students or residents that can help you with the note. A lot of times you are finishing those notes at a separate time. Like I I still have notes that I have to finish that I'm going to have to find some time to sit down and do. Oftentimes at night, oftentimes like even in between cases, you have to do that. So a lot of that is really just focused on the data review the patient counseling, and then the planning. That's really like what that 20 minutes is. Do you find most days you come home and you're, you're writing notes when you get home? I, I would say most days I'm not. Okay. My wife good. is in a different situation. Okay. Right? <laughs> I would say most days I'm not. I would say most days I have we have really, really excellent help. Great. Right? Who are like, do a lot of pre-charting, they import a lot of data. So for us, it's very, very well streamlined. I think most surgeons would like to live in a world where that stuff is cleaned so that you can look at the data, make an analysis, and then make a decision, right? Got it's it. very challenging to have to, like, be, you know, looking through care everywhere and looking through stuff from 20 years ago to try to figure out what happened. So I think most people have the appropriate level of help to help them do that stuff, Got but it. it's still work. Definitely. Yeah. So if I gave you $100 million today, yeah. tax-free, it's yes. in your bank account, you can do whatever you want with yeah. it, would you, A, still work full-time, mm-hmm. work part-time, do another job completely or just yeah. retire and do nothing? Yeah. I think, so here's what I'll say. Yes. That, the answer to that question would change dramatically depending where I am in my career. Arc, Got it. Right? Just like you said, I'm still relatively young. Like I'm mm-hmm. only five years out of training. I would still work. You'd still work full I would time. still work. Yeah, I think full I would. Time. I think, I, I really love my job. Yeah. Fundamentally. Like I love my job. I love interacting with people. I love helping the utilization of a very hard-earned skill. It was, a, it was a huge sacrifice. How many, I mean, how many years of training did you go? I mean, we have four years of undergrad, yep. four years of medical school, yep. uh, two years of research, right? Yep. Uh, five years of surgery, mm-hmm. residency, and then two years of fellowship. I just lost it in my head. Yeah. Four, eight, mm-hmm. uh, plus another two is 10. Yeah. Plus five is 15. Yep. And then two, 17. Yeah. And then you added one more because I actually did one of those super fellowships. For you nine did months. the super fellowship. Yeah. So we're at 18 years of training. Yeah. To get to where you are That's today. It. So yeah. you got to love it, right? You got to love it. You got to love it. The, it's, uh, you know, the, old, the only question that matters is the juice worth the squeeze. Yeah. That's all that matters. And, I, you know, it's, it's, it was a lot of sacrifice. And, you know, it's, uh, it's hard to even just say it's a lot of sacrifice because think about the opportunity cost of working, you know, 70, 80, 90 hours a week in your 20s and 30s, right? A time in your life where you have like a beautiful nexus of energy, motivation, you know, as you get older, some money, you have all that stuff in front of you and you have to sacrifice a lot of that, right? To be a medical student or be a resident. So I think to me, I have been so pleased with the, the outcome of that, of like what I do, how important it is, you know, and I will be honest, the fact that it's well compensated. Yes. And like I can live a comfortable life because of all that sacrifice. And, you know, it's 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 hard to summate what it means when someone looks at you and they just say thank you because you like saved their life. 
you know, you don't really see that so much as a resident because mm-hmm. you're so focused on like getting to the next thing, right? Mm-hmm. Surviving the day. When you're an attending, you see it on the back end. When you see people two, three years out. I still have patients that see me, they give me a big hug. She brings me rugula every time that yeah. she sees me. And it's just like a wonderful celebration of like her life yeah. that is still ongoing because of something that I did. And I don't, I, it's very hard to put a number on that for me. A hundred million is a great, is a wonderful amount of money, but I don't think I could stop chasing the high, yeah. at least at this point, for that number. So I guess, so you're saying you have these these great experiences when you're an attending, yeah. when you're a resident, when you're a medical student. What pushed you to keep going if you're having less of these experiences? Yeah. I think, you know, as, as a medical student, um, I had a lot of people who recognized my humanity, who were just like good people and checked in on me and like cared and would address me. You know, my, um, uh, I was not going to be a surgeon. I was going to be a neurologist. Oh. I was going to be a neurologist wow. when I came to medical school. That's what I thought. I was a neuroscience major in college. I'd done all this research on Parkinson's. I was going to be a neurologist. And, you know, by a chance, you know, encounter that first summer after medical school, I ended up working with a bunch of trauma surgeons. And I just loved them. They were like the best. They were smart, funny, capable. They could switch from being this like jovial, wonderful personality to being like the most serious, most clear-headed, most certain person you'd ever met in your life and it happened instantaneously and I thought that just felt like a superpower I had never seen anything like that in terms of like up close and personal and it just felt unbelievable to me and I remember at the end of that summer experience my mentor his name is Vicente Gracias he's actually up at Robert Wood Johnson I went to go see him in the ICU you know to sort of like conclude our time he was rounding in the ICU and he had a he was rounding huge team 20 people Huge team. They're rounding on the whole ICU. He's a very dynamic personality. And I remember I was sort of like waiting in the back for our meeting, and he stopped rounds. He looked at me. He got hey, hey, bang it, come here. And he brought me up. And like, you know, I'm a first-year medical student. This is like terrifying, right, to like have anyone even 20 acknowledge. 20 people. 20 people. One so person would be enough. One person would be enough. Like, these are all the fellows and surgery residents. And he like, he walked up to me. He like shook my hand. He said, hey, you did a great job this summer. I'm really proud of you. I really hope you become an academic surgeon. And I, I really felt like that moment was like inception. I felt like he like did it. Like that was all it took. Like I'd had all this wonderful experience and then he like just summated it in such a perfect way. And that was like it. That's like all I needed was like this wonderful moment to be like, okay, it's crystallized. Like that was it. And it worked out. That's, that's fantastic. Yeah. So was going through medical school, did, the, did your thoughts change at all? Yeah. Were you switching to, ner- <laughs> to, you know what I mean? Yeah. You know, like I think, I had a healthy skepticism yes. for, for being a surgeon yeah. about what the sacrifice is going to entail. So I really kept an open mind as much as I could. Like, I wanted to like other things. Like, I, I really like pediatrics. I thought I was going to be a pediatrician for and like a And you came time. into med school with the same impression that we had, that surgery, you know, your life's over. Yeah, your life's tough. over. Yeah, it's a wrap. <laughs> you know, pack it up. So, you know, I, I, you know, I looked at pediatrics. I looked at, you know, even other surgical subspecialties like urology and ENT and ortho. And I just felt most grounded, most centered, most at home, like in general surgery and the general surgery subspecialties. I like the people. I like the problems. I like sick people. I like challenging problems. And that just kept calling me back. So by the time I got to my third year, I was like, by the end of my third year, I was pretty much locked in. And that was like, that was well enough. Yeah, that was enough. For for upcoming medical students, you just gave some great things. Do you feel like these are your people? This is where you feel comfortable. You like the challenging problems. Do you think those should be the things we have in our heads when we're thinking about what specialty to go into? Yeah, I think you got to remember, you're going to do this every day of your life for probably 30, 35 years. So there are some, like people like are 
are mutable, right? They okay. change. Like, I don't want to give anybody the impression that, like, oh, I liked these three people that I met, so that's why I should do this. Yeah. That's not true. Got it. Right? Like, you got to look at the gamut of people that you would meet. Like, if you meet 100 people and there's a vibe of those people, like, that's probably what the specialty will sort of generate, right? And, like, that's okay to pay attention to. That's that's a real thing. That's a legitimate thing. I think you have to like the problems, right? You have to like the challenges that the patients and the disease processes are going to present. Part of the reason why I knew I was going to do thoracic is because I had some challenging experiences, like, rotating on some of those services where it was difficult, and I felt that despite the difficulty— I was still really interested in the problems and I was still really interested in the patients. So it was almost valuable to maybe not have the best experience, but still really like the work. I see. So that's kind of what you have to balance it between those two things. Do I like the ethos of the people that I work with? And also, do I like the problems that will will be the problems that you'll deal with potentially for? Wow. Wow. And were there any like moments of like this is was it so third year that you said crystallized definitely surgery yeah. were there any moments of fear maybe fourth year submitting your ERAS application <laughs> or anything like that or you're just like what am I doing Neuro- yeah. <laughs> yeah no I think you know I think I was pretty sure at that time I think I had a lot of um, fear of the unknown yeah right you know, I remember at that time my wife and I had been dating for like a year okay you know I remember having a conversation with being like hey babe like I think I'm gonna do general surgery like I wanna know that you're okay with that right like I recognize I'm going to sign us up mm-hmm. for kind of a challenging run here. That may last a long time. Was she in the same year? Was she applying to residency? No, she's several years behind me. She Got was it. an undergrad when I was in medical school. Got she it. eventually okay. went on to medical school and residency. So, mm-hmm. we, you know, we've, we've, we've been a tandem in all these things for a while. But I think, you know, I didn't even know what I was signing us up for. So I think that level of uh, anticipation of the unknown, knowing that it was going to be challenging mm-hmm. and not knowing the that meant was like probably what I was feeling a lot of my fourth year. Yeah. But I was still pretty sure. Got right. Because I just didn't think that anything else anything gave else. me the gave me the high. And again, that's an easy decision to make when you're 25. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You're unmarried. Yeah, yeah. I well, at least I was unmarried. Yeah. I didn't have kids. My 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 whole life had been about academic achievement and career achievement. So it was very easy Got it. to focus on that without anything else. And I think, you know, as 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 uh the 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 makeup of people that are becoming physicians changes more non-traditional students. The pressures will change, and thus the decisions will change. But again, it's okay to listen to yourself. It's yeah. okay to like it. Like, we like it. Yeah, yeah <laughs> It's yeah. okay to like it. You, can, you don't have to fight it. If it makes sense to you and it will make you happy, it's okay to do it. The, the sacrifice, the juice, will be worth the squeeze. Wow. And CT surgery, was that decided in medical school as well? No. Yeah, no. So let's talk about residency. Yes, yes, How, yes What yes. was residency like? Was yeah. it harder than you thought? Yeah. Easier than you thought? More fun than you thought? Yeah. Not as much fun as you <laughs> thought? Um, so I think residency was great fun. Got it. Right. In retrospect, I look back and I think about it as a, as a, as a very fun time. I think it was an amazing amount of personal development, professional development. And at the same time, it was, it was really challenging. For the same reason I mentioned before, the skill set changes year to year and you have to adapt and it's a lot of responsibility it's different from being a medical student where like there is a very thin paper wall between being responsible and not being responsible and once you cross that rubicon once you have that degree and you are the resident you are responsible right you're responsible to the patient you're responsible to your team you're responsible to your attendings you're responsible to yourself so that was part of the challenge is sort of like growing in that Right. And when I started residency, I was going to be a trauma surgeon for all the reasons Mm, that I said before. I was like, I'm going to do trauma. I love it. I'm going to do some critical care. I'm going to do some general surgery. I'm going to do some, you know, trauma. It's going to be awesome. And then as, you know, I went through general surgery, I realized how much I really love operating. 
like every day, the skill of it, the art of it, the focus of it. And, you know, there are parts of trauma that are very non-operative, like critical care. You can do amazing trauma surgery and do not that much surgery, right? Because your job is to manage the acute injury. And there are lots of different ways you can do that. Some of them are non-operative. Some of them are through radiology. Some of them are with time or other specialties. And I think as I went through the early parts of residency and I just loved actually being in the operating room, then my mind was like, okay, like, do you want to do something that's a little bit more like operative heavy? And I liked cancer. Again, I liked the challenge. My brain was deconstructive, focusing on the deconstructive. So for me, it was either about doing surgical oncology, like belly surgery or maybe like hepatobiliary surgery. And then I think when I was an intern, towards the middle of interning, I rotated on thoracic and I was like, okay, like this is kind of cool. Okay, there's some lung stuff here. We're deconstructing. I like this. I like this. And by the time I was like an end of the year two or three, I was like, okay, I really like this. Mm -hmm. Like, and then the question was, can I do it? Right. Not so much that I like it, but like, was I good enough? Right. Was I like smart enough, good enough, capable enough to do CT? Because mm -hmm. to do CT, you have to do cardiac, mm -hmm. right? In your fellowship, or your, at your correction, your residency, you do some cardiac. Like I did nine months of cardiac surgery and I had a lot of fear about that. Legit. I was like, I don't know if I'm going to be technically good enough or, you know, have enough command or be wise enough to get through that time. Because like I talked to people who are thoracic surgeons who were like, that time was very difficult. Right. So like the challenge for me at that point was like, okay, like can difficult I Difficult skill wise or difficult time wise or everything? Everything. 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 And you know, we, we may get to this. Yeah. Um, CT residency was much more challenging than, really? than general surgery residency. Much more challenging. Like I would say almost an order of magnitude. Wow. Much more challenging than general surgery residency. We'll definitely get to we'll that. We'll definitely get to that. So, 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 you're, so you're going through surgery, third, fourth year. When do you actually have to apply? Is that the fourth yeah. year of, yeah. of residency? So the CT, the CT residency yes. is a year ahead. So okay. you apply during your PGY four year. Got it. Okay. And then you match in your PGY four year. You do your fifth year of general surgery. And then you start your CT Got residency it. after that. Got it. So okay. it's like you actually know where you're going to be like almost a full 16 months wow. ahead of time. So as soon as you come out of what most people would say is that usual academic enrichment time mm -hmm. after your third year, some people do it after your second year, then you're basically like ready to start like getting your stuff together for out of Got it. Got it. And as you hinted to earlier, was the, were the chief years very tough again compared to the first three years? They were tough, but they were awesome. They were awesome. They were awesome. They were awesome. Yeah. You know, it's like you do all this work. It's all yeah. the sacrifice. It's all this like self-doubt and questioning yeah. and labor. And then you focus. You say, okay, I'm going to do it. Like I'm in it. I'm doing it. Like you practice, you do whatever you need to do. You build the systems that are going to allow you to be personally successful, right? And I think I really believe in that. I believe in like you have to decide what is the incremental, the half percent, one percent thing that you're going to do every day, every week, every month that's going to summate to something valuable. Because it's not just like one experience. You don't all of a sudden just like know how to do the lobe, right? It's not like that. You have to decide like, are you going to watch videos? Are you going to write notes? Are you going to do AR? Are you going to do SIM? Like, what is it you're actually doing intentionally that's going to get you to this place that you want to be? So I think when you do that in the early parts of residency, then your four year and your fifth year, it's kind of like uh, Alice in Wonderland where like it turns into color. Yeah. You're like, oh. Oh, like I get it. Like I can see. Like I get it. Like it makes sense. Like I, I'm capable. I can do. And that feeling is intoxicating. Wow. It was wonderful. And chief year was wonderful. And again, it played to my skill sets. I was better with people. I was better teaching. I was better managing 
than I was at checking boxes. That's really because there's a couple studies that show people have the the most enjoyment doing something when you reach a difficulty percentage of about eighty five percent. Yes. Right. Yes. So my my thinking is maybe when you're in those first two, three years, the difficulty percentage is kind of, you you don't know more than 50% of what's going on. <laughs> yeah. But maybe once you're in these chief years, you kind of have an 85% knowledge. So you're in that kind of peak flow time flow. And that, you're, that you're ready to kind of exactly. get things uh, yeah, going. I'm familiar with the concept of flow yeah. and I agree with it. I yeah. think when you know enough to see the edges, it becomes even more beautiful. That's crazy. That's so cool. Yeah. You spoke about systems. Yes. What are the systems you have? And, and I don't want to get too down the rabbit sure, hole sure, and stuff sure. like that. Yeah. But I, I was, I was, you know, stalking you before we did this interview and yeah. stuff. And I was looking through Twitter, and your pinned Twitter post is kind of these these systems you yeah. had. Do you want to maybe touch on a couple of those that yeah. you think were the most helpful? So I think for trainees, especially procedural based trainees, mm-hmm. I would say the most important thing you can do is keep a personal log of how the procedures are done. Okay. And this is something that you write for yourself in your own language to yourself. It should be almost indecipherable to someone who reads it because I'd be like, I don't know what that word is. I don't know why you would say that. But I started keeping that when I was a two. It was advice I got from a, uh, a pediatric surgery fellow. And I started keeping one. I actually keep it on an online platform, uh-huh. a cloud platform that I can edit and look at whenever I want. Which platform? Oh. <laughs> Just, this is the I nerdy use, yeah, 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 I use Evernote. Evernote. I use Evernote. Mm-hmm. And I basically would title it Procedure and the Attending, right? And then I would start with what was the setup you know, what were the important things pre-op? What was the positioning? What was the prep? What were the incisions? What were the goals? Like, what were we trying to accomplish? And then I would reiterate. I would go back. It was an iterative process. Every time I did the procedure, I would go back and add a detail. And then I would add a detail. And then I would add a detail. And it was very difficult to do that. Because a lot of times I'd get out of a case at 8 or 9 o'clock at night. And I would do that. And I would do it. And I did it as soon as I could, as fresh as I could. And that process, not so much the end note, the note at the end is valuable, but it's actually not the point. The point is the writing. The point is the cognitive reflection of what you actually just did, even in your exhaustion, to say, what did I just do? How did I just do it? What were the goals? What were the pitfalls? And by doing that, you will, I, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a phrase I actually am looking to coin someday. Coin it. Yeah. It's the, this could be the moment. This could be the moment. It's the educational efficiency of that moment. You want to maximize the educational efficiency. The progress that you're making from where you are to proficiency, you want to narrow that every time you do the case. Because sometimes you can be in 100 cases and learn nothing. You can be in 100 cases and never be able to do it. You could do that case five times with the right person in the right headspace, in the right context, with the right educational efficiency, and be a master. So I think building systems, so again, for proceduralists, Keeping a personal operative log. I still reference that log because if I see a case that you may, you know. But do, you're the attending now. You I, oh, yeah, I'm supposed to know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's sometimes if you do a case, for instance, that you haven't done maybe in a year or two, it's a rare case. I go back and I say, oh, it was really great that I wrote all this stuff down. So I remember this tip. Oh, remember that? Don't do that. Don't go into the fat. The fat's not your friend on that part. <laughs> and I think that is incredibly helpful. And I think for trainees, it will, it will take you to the moon in terms of your actual ability to be able to do it. That, right. sounds, that sounds very helpful. The other thing I think is you have to read, right? It's, it's just it's exactly what you said. You can, if you don't understand 85% of what is going on, you won't see the beauty in it. And I remember this moment in M&M's. I remember sitting in M&M's as an intern or even at the beginning of the year too, and I was like, I just don't understand what they're talking about fundamentally. Like, I don't see the edges. Like, they're having a very nuanced conversation, and I don't get it. 
And then I was like, okay, I'm going to read four pages a day of like a real true surgical textbook, like a Bible, a tome, something that really makes the table shake when you put it down. Wow. And I said, I'm going to read four pages a day. And I read four pages a day and I did that for a year. And by the end, I was like, I see it. Like, I see what they're talking about. Did you just open the first page, day one, yep. pages one through four, day yeah. two, four through, really? Yeah. And just read it. And just read it. And I, by the end, I was like, I get it. I see why this is a conversation worth having. I see where the challenge is. I see where the nuance is. And it all became more interesting. It all became more interesting. And because of that, it became more valuable, more enjoyable for me. It almost seems like a, a positive feedback loop. The work you put in, you get more joy out of your job. Yep. And so when you go back to learning about it, you get joy because you've learned about what's 100%. going on. Because this is a, a, an insane work ethic you have here, right? Yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I don't know many people that have this work ethic you have. You're, you're going, I mean, as an intern, as a resident, you know, you're in from maybe five to eight or something like that. And then you would go home, you'd write down your notes, and you'd read four pages of a textbook. Yeah. You know, don't get me wrong. I'm not a saint. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> right. You know, I would do my best. Like some yeah. days, maybe I would read two pages or maybe I'd fall asleep oh, on no, the third not page. Two yeah, pages. Or, How dare you know, and I, I would do my best until it got to the point where it was like, now I understand. It makes it so that when you speak to the attendings, you are coming from a place of knowledge and, and, and they will see that instantaneously, right? It's hard to BS an expert, right? With someone who really knows, mm -hmm. they will know within the first 15 seconds, whether you actually have any sense of what you're talking about. And the moment they know that you know, mm -hmm. then now you're having that secret conversation that I was missing at Eminem, and it all goes upstream, right? They treat you better, they respect your opinion more, they let you do more. It's, a, it's, a, it's just like you said, it's a positive feedback cycle. But if you don't find some way, some system to make that investment, you'll never hit that slope, mm -hmm. right? And then you're sort of going through the motions, which is not as valuable as actually being in it. Yeah, and it's not only you're faking it to the experts who know you're faking it, you're almost faking it to yourself. 100%. You're almost saying, you're almost, and if you're going to be faking it to yourself for the next 35 years, what kind of life is that going to well, be? That's, that's very unpleasant, yeah. right? And a lot of surgeons, that happens to a lot of yeah. people who are trained in surgery. You know, like, really? Full disclosure. People get to the end of their training and they, you know, we, we say, it's like two things we say. They don't have the eye of the tiger, right? They never got to the point where they realized that they were, they were seeing in color, right? You understand where the edges are. Even if things don't go perfectly, at least you understood the risk, right? So like you never saw it in color. So you never learned to like attack the case. You never learned to be proactive. You never learned to be like, I am, and I'm really an expert, mm -hmm. right? I know what I'm doing and you need some of that. And I think that's a little bit where of this, uh, this view of surgeons as like egomaniacs comes in. It's not so much to say that like, I know everything, but it's important to say, I know this. Right. And you need to have that confidence in order to do your job in a way yeah. that's effective. So I, I think for sure you really you really have to commit to it at some point. At some point you have to be obsessed with it. It's, it's, it reminds me of when you're a medical student, you know, they say they're grading you on the rhyme scheme mm -hmm. or something like that. <laughs> yeah. And I kind of scoffed at this thing initially. Yeah. But I remember in my first couple of rotations, I was just copying and pasting the resident note, putting that in, and I had no idea what I was saying. Yeah. I had no idea what these these CHF means yeah. and all these other <laughs> weird random letters that I'm seeing and like, what's type 2 diabetes versus type 1 diabetes? I don't exactly. even know that. And these kind of things. But the best piece of advice that was given to me kind of halfway through my clinical rotations sometime in third year is someone said, you know, explain it so it makes sense to you. Explain it so it makes sense to you. And if you explain it so it makes sense to you, it's probably more likely going to make sense to the other person as well because you have a better way of explaining things that you understand. And the other thing that I found is that I was much more comfortable 
as well. Because before, it was almost like I was just reading it like this, yeah. line by line by line by line. But again, I'm still extremely early in my career. I really don't know much at yeah. all, right? But even the step of saying, wait a second, I know if the heart's not working that well, maybe that means there's some fluidy stuff junking around the lungs. <laughs> and even me saying it like that, which mm -hmm. is not a professional way, not using terms and stuff like that, is almost better than saying, you know, there's a lot of effusion around the yes. left lobe of the... Yes. When I didn't know what to say, and the attendings, they knew it. Yeah. They knew it right away. Yeah. And when I made that switch, it was almost like a, a different respect was established. And, That's right. and even if I said something wrong, they'd say, no, listen, the fluid's not in this junky part yeah. of the side. It's, it's on here. the other junky yeah. side of the thing. Yeah. And it's, yeah. But, you know, you, you know the, the, it's self-teaching. Yeah. Right. And the teaching is, and that's another reason why it's, you know, it's the reason why people flock to academic medical centers for their care. Right. At the, at the highest end of problems. Because when you have to teach, when you have to be an expert in something, you really know it. Like, you know, that's the old saying. If you really want to see if you know something, try to teach it to someone. Same thing I would expect of the medical students and the residents. Like, the, the other one of the other things that systems that I developed is develop a talk that you give, a canned talk on a problem. You can give it in 20 minutes. You can give it to someone who is maybe one or two stages behind you in their academic career, and they can understand it. And if you can do that and you have to refine it, then you really know it. Mm. If you can give that talk stem to stern and have it be didactic, have questions, and if they really get it at the end of that, then you really know it. That's how you know. So journal, keep journal. in mind what's going on. Yeah. Uh, we're going to create the talk. Yeah, and read. Then read. Read an actual, full-on, well-sourced text. Big, right. thick guy. The big thing. Like something that you're like, oh, I, I, I will never open that book again. <laughs> but at least once, I read it. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. So... Keeping on this work ethic, yeah. CT surgery residency now. Yes. Why is this an order of magnitude harder? <laughs> yeah. So here's uh, so general surgery has lots of things that are dangerous and they're really sick people. Almost everything in CT is dangerous, and almost everyone is really sick. Right. So the 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 margin of error shrinks significantly. For instance, in cardiac surgery, and I used to make a joke that the moment you cut the skin for a stenotomy in CTs in cardiac surgery, everything else is life-threatening. From the moment, from that moment until the patient is in the ICU, every single thing that you do is life-threatening. From the sternotomy to cannulation to putting in your graft, putting in your valve, closing the chest, drying up, everything is life-threatening. So the stakes are much, much higher, and they're much more immediate, right? It's not like someone who will have a recurrent hernia in three or four or five months. Um, it's like someone who will die, like today. Like before you leave, that person will die. And I think that elevation and the stakes really brings your blood pressure up as a trainee, right? And it's also hard because, like, the attendings have to trust you to do things that are much more dangerous every single day. Cannulating the aorta, which is like putting in a, an actual piece of plastic into the aorta so you can put blood flow to the rest of the body while you operate on the heart, is incredibly dangerous. You can kill someone if you do it wrong right then and there, right? And you have to do it every day, sometimes multiple times a day. So I think the stakes going up was a big challenge. Cardiac and thoracic, thoracic a little less than cardiac because, you know, general surgery residents oftentimes rotate on thoracic. So we have an intern and a three that rotate with us. At other places, like when I was in, in general surgery residency, I did thoracic probably every single year of my residency in some form. Sometimes it was at the VA. Mm -hmm. So it's not so alien, right? So you've done it before. You kind of have the rudiments of understanding pulmonary anatomy. You understand some of the indications. You can do an excellent excellent general surgery residency and do almost no cardiac, never see the heartbeat, never cannulate, right? That's because it's moved away from core general surgery. 
So when you go onto cardiac as a, you it's know, new. it's new. It's all new. The anatomy is new. The physiology is new. The sewing is so much more difficult than general surgery sewing because the angles are totally different. It's 3D. There's depth. There's breath. You don't really understand how close everything in the heart is to itself. So everything changes. And that, the reason why I think you have to build those really good habits in general surgery is so that you can, you can really use them for that big challenge, right? A lot of other subspecialties like vascular or MIS or colorectal, those things are core general surgery. So if you do those after you do general surgery, you'll feel pretty comfortable. Like you, you know the spaces, you can see the edges. In cardiac and even in some types of thoracic, you don't know. Right. So you're learning in that two, three years, you're really learning it actively again, where you just came from being sort of, you know, king of the mountain. You're a chief. chief. You, you were managing and now you're whoop, right back to learning. So general surgeons, they'll never in the in your first five years of general residency, they'll never cannulate the aorta or anything. You're not yeah. allowed to do that. No, until You can. Some places will have occasional rotations, but it's not a requirement. Right. So you may never. Right. I no, I never cannulated anyone in general surgery residency. I did a couple sternotomies mm-hmm. here and there, but I never cannulated anyone. Mm-hmm. I didn't do that until I was a fellow. So all two years, was it Was it the first kind of couple of months that yeah. was really tough? And then you kind of got the feel of it and yeah. things were better? Yeah, the first year was hard. Yeah. The first year, I think, was the hardest year of my professional life. Yeah, It was really difficult. It's a huge step up, a ton of responsibility, a big change in how things are run. It's also like a change in system, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I went to a place that was very fellow-heavy. We had a lot of fellows and we had a lot of physician extenders. Whereas like in general surgery residency, you have teams, right? You have lots of layers of kind of redundancy mm-hmm. in residence. So as a fellow there, you were very hands-on with everything. And you had all these other responsibilities. You still had to be learning. You still had to be, you know, teaching. You had all this other responsibility. So the first year was was really is it physician extenders that NPs, PAs? Yeah. So I, you know, I that's my colloquialism Got for it. NPs and PAs. Got it. You know. So I think um that first year really took a lot of uh, my reserve, my my learned skill sets, and my habits were like critical. You know, again, you you know, you fall to the level of your habits and you mm-hmm. fall to the level of your training. So I think you know, you know, my wife was awesome. Like she was going through her internship at the same time, but she was incredibly supportive. My mom was awesome. You know, she lived with us. She took care of my son. So I had everyone had my back. Right. And I just had to like do it. I had, to, I had to fire. I had to execute on the on the skills and the knowledge. So, but that was hard. So the two year, you get through those hard years. Yeah. Now you're an attending. Yeah. Tell me about being an attending. Is it's it, awesome. Is it's awesome. It's awesome. It's awesome. It's awesome. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> it's awesome. You know, I think, you know, it's it's everything. Yeah. Right? I felt like when, you know, like I talked about when I was a fourth year yeah. medical student, I was so focused on the journey that I had actually basically almost ignored the yeah. end goal. I hadn't even thought about it. I had not really said to myself, okay, like, what are the details of what my life is going to look like when I'm 39? I was so focused on, like, how am I going to survive? So now being, like, on the other side of that, I really love my job. I really love being an attending. I love that I get to practice thoracic surgery. I think about it all the time. I'm in the OR, I'm taking a lobe out, and I'm almost in disbelief that I'm the person doing it. I almost can't look back and be like, you did it. Like, you managed 18 years of challenge, and you did it. You were doing it. Like, and you're actually good at it. Like, you're a good doctor. You're a good surgeon, right? It's, it's, it's taking me a lot of personal self-reflection at this point to, like, right, to, to totally wash myself of any syndrome, yes. which is, I think, is 
almost impossible, right? It's good for you. Actually, it keeps you humble. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, I love that I get to teach. I love interacting with the medical students and the residents. I love being attending that. I love being gracias for yeah. me. I love that. I love acknowledging people and investing in them and training them. You know, being a source of light, being yeah. some sunshine. I really place enormous value on that. You know, I love that my wife is in her career now. I love that she is doing what she wants to be doing, that she's doing it the way she wants to be doing it. I love that she's a better doctor than me. It makes me really happy. She's awesome. <laughs> Why do you say she's a better doctor? She's just, she's great. She's just great. Like, I, you know, we share some patients now and again. Cause really? She, yeah, because she's physical medicine and rehabilitation. Okay. So, you know, there's a couple of interfaces where we see each other's mm -hmm. patients. And these patients rave about my wife. They rave about her. And she's just so good. Her notes are perfect. Her thought process is, like, deep. She, like, really cares about people. Not that I don't care about people. She <laughs> really cares about people. So I think us having sort of gotten to that place is wonderful. Yeah. Where it almost feels like an impossible challenge, you know, 18 years ago. Do you feel like this is almost like the golden time of life? Or do you think it's like, yeah, not to say you're old, because you're not old at yeah. all. You know what I mean? I'm just saying, do you feel like you're finally at the moment where things, because sometimes I feel like I hear the stories of people going through residency, you know, they're working very long times. Yeah. It's almost like you're just trying to stay alive kind yeah. of thing, right? Yeah. But hopefully the idea is once you get to maybe the point you're at right now, now you can start to get everything else in coordination. Yeah. But then the counterpoint to this is a lot of people, you hear the cliche phrase, mm -hmm. right? It's never the right time to have kids. Yep. It's never the right time to, whatever, start your business. It's never yeah. the right time to become a doctor, Yeah. right? So I guess my question is, do you feel like you are kind of in a more calm place where you can get your life more yeah. in order? Or I guess it's <laughs> yeah. So I, you know, I, I would say the challenges just become different, Yeah. right? So now I have the challenges of like uh, a professional adults, you know, yep. doctor who's, you know, married to another professional. Yep. We have two kids, right? We have a completely different set of challenges that are not the same challenges I had 10 years ago. So it's not that, like, my life is very good. I'm very happy. It's not to say that things are like everything is sunshine and rainbows. Yeah. It's just different challenges yeah. that we experience now. And I think the, the, the advice that I would give is like, you should do it because you enjoy the process, right? Like I enjoyed that process as grueling as it was. There was... I like a, a real value in that. And like, you know, I was cultured and raised in a family that placed a ton of value on grittiness and toughness and the ability to put your head down and get through something, which, you know, has its own challenges. <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> has its own challenges. But certainly um, it spoke to, like, it spoke to something in my core. Yeah. That like, this is something of value. This is something worth doing. This is something worth being obsessed with. Yeah. You know, it's a some degree. So I think, as long as you can enjoy the process, and but you can also recognize that the challenges you're going to experience when you're done are going to be different, right? So I think it's it's both. You kind of have to like have a little bit of an eye on the prize. Like you'll get to a point in your life where like some things will not be the primary concerns. Like money may mm -hmm. not necessarily be the primary concern. Whereas like now my primary concern is time yes. and energy. Yeah. Right. So like some of those things will shift, but you will learn a lot about yourself and you'll do a lot of good mm -hmm. in the process. So lifestyle comparison between you and your wife, yes. right? Because PM&R is, is touted often as kind yeah. of one of the best yeah. quote unquote lifestyles, yeah. which we've seen maybe necessarily true based on yeah. the stats. How do you see that comparison between uh, cardiothoracic surgeon yeah. and PM&R? Yeah. So it's fascinating. Like, you know, so much of what your lifestyle is going to look like, this is like a dirty little secret okay. that no one tells you. 
it's 100% dependent on the job that you take. That's really what matters. So, like, I could put a 1,000 thoracic surgeons in a room. Depending on what part of the country you live in, what your practice type is, academic or private, and even within that, like, what your sort of, like, niche subspecialty may be, your lifestyle is totally different. So it's almost unfair, right, to carte blanche compare, like, subspecialties just on a name. I would say in general, you know, the the things that we focus on a day-to-day basis are different, right? My wife has to think she has mostly outpatient um, sort of interactions, and then she has a lot of inpatient consultations for PM&R. So she does a lot of procedures. She still does, you know, ultrasound-guided injections and a lot of things. So we share in that world, like, thinking about how to be proceduralists. But she's she has to do a lot more notes than I do. Right, her value in terms to the system is really in those notes and in those procedures that she does. So some of the the paperwork requirements are hard, are much higher for her. And then depending on you know, like what help she gets on a regular basis between TAs, MAs, can really dramatically shift the quality of her day. So the focus is different, mm-hmm. right? And I think the the obvious challenge is she doesn't really have any emergencies. She doesn't really have to go in in the middle of the night. That's not a thing. I do. Right, like there are multiple nights I know that I could get called and have to go in. That doesn't happen frequently, maybe once a quarter, but it does happen, and I have to be prepared for that. How often are you on call? So there's three of us in our group. Okay. So we basically all we you know we do one week on, two weeks off in okay. some capacity, and then we're on every third weekend. We're probably a little light right now, so mm-hmm. we're, there's actually a fourth partner that's being hired within the system. Okay. That will decompress that. So when I started here, that that was our original confirmation was basically one weekend in four mm-hmm. that we were on, and that worked out pretty well. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, and you you live outside of the city, right? So I you do. have to you commute in. I commute in. Yeah, my commute's probably. You know, we live, we bought a house very close to the train yeah. station on purpose. Nice. So if I take the train, I can usually get in like 28 minutes. Yeah. If I drive, it's maybe a little bit more. The way back, driving tends to be a little bit painful. It's like usually 45 minutes. But again, if I take the train, I, you know, I cut it back down to 30. So we have a fair amount of flexibility in our options. Where do you think your future is? What is, <laughs> what is your, is a big question, right? Yeah. In, in uh, career-wise, what is your, what are your interests? What do you want to go into? I know I've seen things, robotic surgery seems mm-hmm. like a, something that's very important to you. Yeah. Is there something that's piquing your interest that you're definitely going down this path or are yeah. you looking at a couple branches? You know, I think, I see branches. I see the things that like I generally gravitate towards yeah. too. Like I still gravitate towards my research. I still gravitate towards teaching and being like in the milieu with the learners. So I think those are the things that will probably continue to pique my interest like over time. And, you know, I've learned a little bit to like, you know, let the, let the universe show you what it has for you in a way and like assess those things. Because even the research I did now is not the research I ever thought I would do six or seven years ago. And like some of the, some of the details of the things I do on a daily basis are not necessarily the things I would have said six or seven years ago. So I think I leave myself a little bit of room to say, let's see what happens. Let's see what happens. But also at the same time, like I'm very happy, you know, yeah. we are so happy at Jeff. We're, I'm so happy with my partners. I'm so happy with my practice that I don't, and this is a little bit of a challenge. It's actually weird in medicine when you get to the place where you don't necessarily feel like you have to, mm-hmm. like you can just like be where you are. That's a, it almost seems like a foreign thought. It almost yeah. seems like you're on Venus or Mars. Yeah, exactly. That <laughs> yeah, like that's that. like a different universe. Like you can just be where you are yeah. and you can be happy being where you are and that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. It's stunning, yes. Yeah. yeah. It's good. I mean, it's great, but it's just every, it's almost the, the de facto 
characteristic of a medical student. You know, yeah. you're always looking to the next thing. You're always going to be right. more competitive. You're yeah. always going to work a little bit harder to get a little bit That's higher. right. Yeah. So medical students, if you're trying to describe the characteristics of a medical student that would be well-suited for surgery yeah. in general, what yeah. do you think describes a medical student that might be like, okay, this, this medical student would be a great surgeon? Yeah. I think the so – I'll actually start in the inverse. Yes. The last thing I actually care about is your technical ability. Okay. I'll say that up here. The last thing I care about is at this exact moment, like how well you sew. I think that's a that's a useless. Some people used to care about that dexterity. Meh, not useful. Not useful. I really think I care about someone's ability to commit, their grittiness, like to how they tolerate challenging circumstances, and their emotional intelligence, right? Because there are so many parts of the job that are dependent on teamwork, that are dependent on being able to relate and connect to a human being in a very short period of time, right? And then there's so much of it that says, I need to learn this. Like, I need to commit. I need to release myself to this, to garner this skill set. So it's not so much about like, oh, I'm the smartest person that I ever lived. That's actually not true. Most surgeons are not that smart. Most doctors are not that smart, right? We test well. But they're actually not that smart. Like, there were much smarter people I met at Harvard. My brothers, you know, went to MIT. He's an aerospace engineer. If you want pure intellectual horsepower, there are much smarter people than doctors. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. So I think I would really focus on their ability to commit, their grittiness, and their emotional intelligence. Got it. And if I'm a medical student, say I'm in my first or second year, and I know 100% I'm going into surgery. Yeah. What advice would you have for someone that's definitely going into surgery? Okay. How do you excel to go into a good program or just yeah. succeed as a surgeon? Yeah. I would say the first thing you should do is reach up, right? Yeah. So find some residents who are like in it, who you admire. Talk to them. Say, hey, I can only imagine how busy you are. Can I come to the, you know, wherever and meet you for coffee and just pick your brain for 20 or 30 minutes about how you manage the process, which is what I did. Next, find some good sponsors or mentors. And those are two different things, right, in a way. And you need them. You need people who are going to be able to give you some eye-in-the-sky guidance on your process, right, who can look at where you are, look at your background, look at your portfolio and say, these, these are the areas that I would sure up. And I think, at least in the way it's working now, at least the way, <laughs> the way residency application is now, you know, research is really the arms race, Right. Because, you know, your step one scores, not even maybe research or like what the, the other thing that you're bringing to the table, right? Because your step one scores are now pass fail. Step two scores, like some places are asking, some places are not. So there's going to be a movement away from like some of these quote unquote like hard and fast metrics. And, you know, as a, as a total, I understand to the programs, you know, programs will get 2,000 applications for seven spots. Right. And mostly that job of the person who's or the people that are doing that is not well compensated enough to like sort through 2000 applications to find seven people who may or may not choose you. Right. It's not like you choose them and they say yes. It's not the deal. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. So they had, they, you know, historically they've had to do something, however fair or reasonable yeah. that was that was. So like it's still a very challenging process. So now the question is, how are you going to differentiate yourself or say I'm the person that you should invest all this time and training. And that's what it is, right? You're investing, but they're also investing. The attendings are investing, the institution's investing, they're investing in you. So how should I prove that I'm the person worth investing in? And the way you can demonstrate that is to say, this is my floor, right? This is the worst version of me, <laughs> right? These are, these are the habits that I will fall back to. These are the things in my life that demonstrate, like, this is where, this is 
just what I will do. Yep. This is how I exist. This is how I function. And then what is my ceiling? What's the best version of me? What's the version of me like if all the resources come together, if all the potential comes together, who could I be? Right. If you say, okay, I could be a chair of surgery, I could be, you know, the leader of the, uh, you know, the American Surgical Society, like the surgical society. Like, how would you do that? Right. Are you doing that because you you are such an innovator, you're such a thinker? And how have you demonstrated that? Are you going to do that because you are a researcher who has proven that you understand scientific research, that you understand the application of the scientific method and have generated scholarly works consistently from that? Are you the kind of person that can use media? Right to communicate and connect with people. What are you going to do that's going to demonstrate where you could go, right? And then after all that, it's the same things. Can you commit? Are you gritty? And are you, so, are you emotionally intelligent? Can you work with people in all different contexts, in all different facets? And I think those are the, the things you have to figure out a way to, to demonstrate in your application. And you can do things from day one to do that. That's extremely helpful. Final question, an extremely important, tough question I'm going to yeah. ask you here. Why do you wear different scrub caps to different <laughs> procedures in the OR? <laughs> yeah, you got a little bit of inside baseball there. No, that's good. Um, so for context, so I wear a different scrub cap depending on the kind of case I'm doing. Uh-huh. So I have a scrub cap for esophagus cases. Yes. I have a scrub cap for like lung cancer cases. And then I have a scrub cap for like benign chest wall, nuss bars, first, you know, first rib resections. You know, I feel, and they're all anime hats. They're all Japanese anime that I love. Oh, a lot wow. of them are from Naruto. Some I of love them Naruto. are from Demon Slayer. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I, I don't know. It feels, you know, when I was a, when I was a resident, I remember going to Pittsburgh for a visit when I was like looking at fellowship places and I got a pair of the scrubs and the Pittsburgh scrubs are like a deep purple and they do so much esophagus. We did so much esophagus as a CT resident that I brought them back to Penn and I would wear them sort of as like a looking forward when I did esophagus cases. I felt like I was imbuing those scrubs. Almost with, in the headspace. In the headspace, exactly. Like, you know, it, it's, the, it's all the same, right? You don the armor. You become the person, right? So to me, the scrub caps are a little bit of an homage to that, right? That I feel like I'm imbuing those scrub caps with like the power and the knowledge and the skill set. And I'm like not only activating that, I'm reminding myself of that. And, I, and it's, a, it's a fun little thing for me, right? It's part of the reason why I love being an attending. I have control of that. I can choose my scrub cap and like I can make it what I want it to be. So that's the reason why I do it. Sounds fun to me too. Yeah. <laughs> Well, this has been amazing, Dr. Kassane. Really, really helpful. And I think it's going to help tons of people. Do you have any places where people can find you? Do you want to put your Twitter? Sure. Uh, your new YouTube channel is coming out. <laughs> yeah, so I'm on Twitter at OkusanyaMD. I've uh, been on Twitter for a while. Yeah. Like, I, I enjoy it. It's a fun way to interact with people. And apart from that, I'm, you know, I'm just here at Jefferson doing, awesome. the, doing the Lord's work. Awesome, awesome. <laughs> well, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. And uh, have fun at work today. Awesome. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much.